Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In this episode, we're talking about homegrown school feeding programs. Globally, an estimated 418 million children receive school meals. That's 41% of all primary enrolled kids. And when that food is grown locally, smallholder farmers who are often vulnerable themselves can benefit too. Our discussion today focuses on Brazil, which is home to one of the world's largest school feeding programs, and long-running policies that require local governments to buy food from local farmers. So in today's episode, it's the tale of the fight against hunger, helping kids to achieve their full educational potential, and procurement. The procurement is key. I promise it's interesting. Stay with me. With me today, I have Danielle Balaban, who is Director for the WFP Centre of Excellence Against Hunger, and Gabriela Perin, who is a consultant for FAO. Welcome, Danielle and Gabriela. Thank you, Joe. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. Danielle, if I can start with you with a really fundamental question. There's often the sense that cash is king in social protection, and we're probably guilty of that on this podcast. We're often talking about cash transfers, pensions, those kinds of things. So I wanted to ask you, why is the provision of food, whether it's through school feedings programs or through other mechanisms, why is food still important in social protection and the fight against hunger? In my opinion, school feeding programs are one of the most prevalent social protection tools for school-age children, with its various benefits addressing the different risks associated to these various stages of children's lives. So, as a social support measure, the school feeding programs help keep children in school and provide an entry point in communities to introduce other safety nets. Let's give the Brazilian example. Brazil has one of the largest, most well-established school feeding programs in the world, serving more than 40 million students every day in all public schools in all regions of the country. So it's important to remember that since 2003, Brazil has adopted a global strategy to tackle hunger administration that articulates a range of programs including the National School Feeding Program. And here is known as PINAI, the program, the National School Feeding Program is known in Brazil as PINAI. That is a homegrown school feeding initiative run by federal government. I could say that PINAI is one of the major Brazilian large-scale initiatives that would change food uh, from farmers. The program is a social safety net for social development and has nutrition-specific components. PNI has also uh, became an international reference on how to combine and articulate the school feeding and agriculture development innovations to improve the vision of population that are among the most vulnerable. Also, I could say that uh, the school feeding programs are never implemented as isolated interventions, but are more often the platforms to which important complementary education, nutrition, and health activities are delivered. So having given us that overview, can you tell us a little bit more about how school feeding programs like these aim to support vulnerable children and families and what kinds of impacts have been observed? 
Well, uh, school feeding is an already consolidated public policy and plays a fundamental role in improving children's health, enhancing their access to education, their general well-being, and guaranteeing their food security. It can be seen as a reliable source for families in vulnerable situations. Another aspect that shows the effectiveness of this policy is a possible increase in school attendance and participation by relieving hunger and malnutrition, it enhances student children's ability to learn. And I would like to say that when offered in combination with quality education and health interventions, I strongly believe that school meals help children achieve their full learning potential. Moreover, these programs have the potential to benefit and inspire the community through leveraging local markets, facilitating agricultural transformation, and enabling households to invest in productive assets. In the Brazilian case, for example, where this policy is combined with agriculture production and with the PNI program, it is possible to have other multidimensional policy impacts, such as economic impact. Gabriella, turning now to you and turning from homegrown school feeding programs and these programs to the production of the food itself. Traditionally, you know, some of the critiques or weaknesses of school feeding programs and food transfers in various contexts have been that they may rely on cheap imported or processed foods, which can unintentionally disrupt local agricultural systems or change the way people traditionally eat. So you've been looking at Brazil's food procurement program through which the government directly purchases produce from small scale and family farmers, often poor themselves, and then distributes that to poor families as part of the social protection system in different ways. So to start off, can you give us an overview of that program? How does it work? Who does it aim to reach? And what are its objectives? Yes, Brazil's Programa de Aquisição de Alimentos, uh, PAA, is a public food procurement program created in 2003 and has two main goals to promote family farmers and to combat food insecurity of vulnerable people. The program works this way. The government directly and exclusively purchases produce from family farmers and their organizations and then distribute to those who need them the most, usually for families identified through the welfare services. So the PA has two direct beneficiaries, the family farmers who sell their products and the people in need who receive them. One of the problems that they aim to address in its creation is the commercialization for family farmers. Before the program, they face many difficulties accessing traditional markets to sell their production due to their specific characteristics. And the innovation with PA was that the family farmers were able to access the public food procurement market, which allowed them to sell their products directly to the government, something that wasn't possible before due to the bureaucratic requirements relating to the bidding process. So by guaranteeing the commercialization of family farmer production, PA ensure that those who sell to the program have access to a regular income. PA integrates in one single public policy aspects from two different policies, creating an institutional demand capable of structuring the production of family farmers and promoting access to food through direct donations for food insecure families. 
Thank you. And I know you've looked at this in terms of the research and the impact of the program. What kinds of impacts have been observed for family agriculture in Brazil and particularly those smallholder farmers? Yes, over these 20 years, the PA has promoted economic, social and environmental impacts. Uh, a literature review mapped 112 studies from the beginning of the program until 2019 and found that the most frequent benefits for the family farmers were the commercialization and guarantee of selling their products, what allowed them to invest in acquiring durable goods, improving their production units and their living conditions in general. There are also evidence observed in the increase in their income especially the poorest family farmers, which are also benefiting from other social protection programs like Bolsa Familia. The PA also encouraged the participation of women as suppliers, and in recent years has been prioritizing this group, which lead to an increase in their income, autonomy, and self-esteem. Regarding the impacts in the environmental perspective, PA promoted diversification of crops, good production practice, and financially encouraged the organic produce, paying family farmers up to 30% higher for products that are certified as organics. And the products that PA purchase are diversified, high-quality food based on local production. PA improved the access, quality, quantity, and regularity of food, not only for the consumer beneficiaries, but also for the suppliers, the family farmers themselves. And studies show that 97% of the products purchased by the PA were fruits, vegetables, and minorly processed, such as seasonings, beef, meat, cassava, flour, and pasteurized milk, which contributes to food security of the beneficiaries and to a promotion of a more sustainable food system. You did mention Bolsa Familia. Does that mean that there would be, that you've got people who are benefiting both from Bolsa Familia and the PAA scheme? And, and how does that come together? Yes, you can uh, participate in the Bolsa Familia because the requirements are very different. One doesn't exclude the other. So usually the poorest family farmers are also the target of Bolsa Familia. Uh, and usually if they participate in the PA, they have access to this market and access to other markets, they can improve their income and they no longer can benefit from Bolsa Familia because they have a, a higher income. But th there hasn't been many impact evaluations to prove this happened. So this is a very important result because the goal of Bolsa Familia is not to keep families forever, but to try to create opportunities through other policies such as PA so they can leave this public policy and to give place to another people that need and also to have the capacity of not depend on this program. Thank you. It's really interesting. There's lots of different ways that programs, cash transfers, try to integrate livelihood support. And it is interesting to see this as a you know, completely different program, but perhaps that is serving a, a similar function. And yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about how food is then distributed through social protection schemes, including the school feeding program, as I understand that's in the mix as well? Yeah, the um, process of delivery happens like this. The family farmers deliver the cultivated products in a place defined by the public administration that implements the program locally. There, these products are analyzed to verify if they are in conditions of consumption. 
They cannot be too green or too ripe. They are weighted. A document is generated to prove the delivery and then these products are carried to welfare institutions, such as schools, nursery homes, entities that assist people in vulnerable situations and in situations of food insecurity. This is a very general description of the process because the implementation of PA is decentralized, so this arrangement can change according to the municipality that implements the program. So, for example, in some cities, the public authorities support farmers by picking up their produce in their homes so they don't have to worry about transport and logistics since many family farmers don't have a car to transport it. And paying for shipping is an extra uh, expense they cannot afford. When it comes to Brazil's very large school feeding program that we've just been discussing, where does the food come from and how does that link in with this idea of being homegrown? It's important to say that Brazil has around four and a half million families that they have a card showing that they are smallholder farmers. So these families, they can provide themselves the food directly to the school feeding program. The law says that at least 30% of the food that is served in the schools needs to be purchased directly from the smallholder farmers. You can purchase 100% but at least 30% needs to be purchased directly from the smallholder farmers. And in Brazil, the school feeding program is decentralized. Brazil has 5,567 municipalities. So each municipality has a specific account where they receive the funds every month from the federal level just to purchase food. They cannot purchase anything else not plates, not gas, just food. We're sort of describing another kind of layering here where uh, smallholder farmers who, as we've just said, may be benefiting from programs like Bolsa Familia, are also participating in PAA, but then may also have a local market in terms of their local school or the local municipality that's procuring food for the school. Yes, that's Correct. And also this, the school feeding program is uh, a very ancient program, but this modification about the 30% is relatively new. Uh, it was a law that was published in 2009. And I can say that PA inspired this, uh, this modification because it's already created these family farmers this market for them so they can access both PA, PNI, they can sell their products to these both markets. Other examples you can think of of how countries have really intentionally, in the same way that Brazil has, thought about linking up local production with distribution to create these homegrown feeding kinds of programs. Joe, uh, I could say that a larger number of countries are increasingly investing in the homegrown school feeding approach with different objectives. I could mention a broader diet, uh, diversity, and introduction of fresh local food in school meals and combining national programs with local smallholder production, thereby enhancing resilience and helping to build more sustainable and inclusive local food systems. Um, there is a publication called State of School Feeding. It's produced by WFP, and this publication highlights that the largest school feeding programs in the world all rely on the principle of locally purchased food. 
So the BRICS countries, which provide around 48% of the world's free or subsidized school meals daily, all use nationally sourced food. Another example is the case of Cambodia. Cambodia is a small uh, country in Asia, which has uh, shown that a homegrown school feeding model has a high potential to benefit and empower smallholder farmers. And more specifically, women farmers who are the backbone of agriculture in Cambodia, but who often have more barriers and struggle to cope with expenses since they are often poor and work on a small scale. So the measures leveraged by a homegrown school feeding model help create local jobs, shorter supply chains, and make local farmer markets more predictable and stable. They also increase access to fresh local produce and help establish lifelong dietary preferences. Uh, even though, Joe, a majority of low-income countries continue to rely heavily on imported foods, there's a need to better understand the constraints for low-income countries and to help them scale up their homegrown school feeding efforts as key elements of their national programs. This is a challenge for us. Daniel, as you've just said, many low-income countries are looking at or using a lot of imported food. And I, I mentioned earlier some of the kind of classic critiques of school feeding and um, in-kind distribution of food in general around concerns that the food is imported, it's processed, it's cheap. This kind of homegrown school feeding approach can't be the cheapest or even necessarily the most efficient way for governments to procure food and probably not even the most efficient way to distribute it. So just to be interested to hear a little bit more about the arguments perhaps that you put forward to say, look, this is why it's important to do it this way in ways that may be more expensive, maybe a bit less efficient, but ultimately have a range of other benefits. When you purchase locally produced food, it guarantees stable markets for smallholders, which contributes to developing uh, communities and generate reliable income to families. We organized a study showing that each dollar invested in a school meals program brings a return of this investment of $9 to the country. This is really important to, to say. It's important to say also that besides this more direct and non-benefit, homegrown school feeding improves the food security of family farmers, reduces the chances of child labor and marriages, therefore uh, protecting child, children and contributing to their uh, education. Furthermore, it directly adds to the efforts to tackle climate change. It's important to say that as family farmers can have more instance to develop agroecological practices when properly backed by the government. So all of this said, it's important to continue investing in homegrown school feeding programs, purchasing locally produced food for the kids in the schools. Daniel, I wanted to ask you a slightly different question now. You've outlined Brazil's experience with homegrown school feeding programs, of course, and talked about some other examples around the world. WFP's Centre of Excellence Against Hunger was established specifically to share some of Brazil's experience of school feeding, and your centre has expanded into a hub of South-South Cooperation Against Hunger. 
just be interested to hear a little bit from your perspective around how this kind of South-South knowledge sharing plays out and how have you seen countries learning and adapting from one another's experience? How do you foster that kind of sharing and, and lessons learning? Thanks, Joe. Very good question. As you mentioned, the WFP Center of Excellence Against Hunger is a global hub for dialogue, for public policy information, learning, resource creation, and South-South technical cooperation. It's a result of a partnership established in 2011 between the Brazilian government and the WFP initially to respond to requests from countries to learn from the Brazilian experience. Since then, we have been supporting more than 80 countries around the world, especially in Africa, Asia, Latin America, to develop sustainable solutions and policies against hunger. I, I could say, Joe, that during the first presidency of uh, President Lula da Silva, who is now again the president in Brazil, the country promoted South-South cooperation and established a series of policies and programs to tackle food insecurity and hunger. All these interventions involve family farming, poverty alleviation, and conditional cash transfers. In 2003, for example, the Zero Hunger Strategy was created. Three years later, the Food and Nutrition Security Law was approved in the country. In 2009, the very important school feeding law was approved by the Congress. So, all these advanced advancements led countries to expect to know more and share experiences with Brazil. And we at the WFP Center of Excellence, we help organize study visits and respond to more specific demands related to school feeding naturally, to Brazil's expectations on supporting countries and South-South cooperation. The center also supports countries in various ways. Uh, always operating on demand and helping identify and develop national solutions, creating ownership. This is very important. For instance, we support the design and implementation of pilot programs, countries' strategies, legislation, and national plans, organization of public consultations, uh, workshop training, and other actions for the sustainability of national programs. Many of our partners have included lessons learned uh, shared by WFP Center of Excellence in their national school feeding experiences. For example, just for example, Sierra Leone implemented a local procurement pilot uh, program by, to buy fresh vegetables. Um, the Republic of Congo recently, which had a delegation visiting Brazil, has devoted its attention to supplying sustainable local sources for use. And uh, several Portuguese-speaking countries are exchanging views on nutrition-sensitive school feeding, homegrown school feeding programs, and innovative ways to establish intersectoral partnerships. That's it, uh, uh, what we've been doing during these last 10 years, Joe. Gabriela, you worked on a policy brief on the Brazilian Food Procurement Program as part of a series that IPEA, Brazil's Institute of Applied Economic Research, has put together in preparation for Brazil taking over the chair of the G20 this year. The G20, of course, is the premier forum for international economic cooperation. It's tasked with navigating complex global economic challenges why is the experience of the food procurement program 
and some of these other approaches to combating food insecurity, something that the G20 should take note of, in your opinion? Well, uh, PA has proven to be an adequate market for family farmers to sell their products and also to promote access to a healthy food in adequate quantity and quality for people experiencing social vulnerabilities and food insecurity. So PA design can be applied to other contexts as it was already been a few years ago with the South-South cooperation in some countries in Africa. So there are some elements in PA design that can be applied to other contexts, such as the prioritization of women as suppliers, the purchase of regional produce, the decentralized implementation so that the local governments have autonomy to define jointly with family farmers or in the beneficiary welfare services, which products will be produced, how they will be delivered, the calendar, the frequency, and also targeting at local, traditional, organic, and healthy products can ensure quality, combat food insecurity, and promote sustainability, especially in this moment with the post-pandemic and that the world is still struggling economically. So the policy brief was a great opportunity to give visibility to this innovative program that is PA that has this uh, potential to be exported to other countries. Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. I think it's the G20. We associate that with globalization. And here, of course, we're really talking about localization. What do finance ministers and governments need to understand about this as we face these economic and climate crises? Well, Joe, in, in my opinion, it's becoming increasingly difficult to clearly define what is local and what is global. So uh, limits between the two are more and more fluid. Times are really complex nowadays. We are facing a multiple crisis involving climate change, air pollution, biodiversity loss, war among nations and enduring burdens of the pandemic and deaths sadly developing countries as well as undernourishment and hunger. We still have around 800 million people hungry in the world and the most affected are the vulnerable ones. Let's also not forget the regional. Regions still matter. As countries can join to find synergies and develop common strategies to tackle many of these challenges. Latin America and Caribbean, for example, show how school feeding matters greatly for individual countries, but also for the region. Above all, what we need is a change in our mindsets. We should have political will and understand that the money that is spent to end hunger by 2030 is a mere fraction of what countries spend on weapons. Just for you to understand, the world spent last year more than $2 trillion and $200 billion in military. Just for comparison, the whole WFP budget expected for this year is around 10 billion. It's next to 0.45% of military expenditures to try to save lives and bring food to more than 150 million people around the world every day. So, Joe, uh, the world needs to rethink its priorities, and Brazil could bring this renewed view to the G20.
Gabriella and Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure to discuss this important topic with you. Thank you, Joe. It was a great invitation. Thank you, Daniel. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today we have Valerie Fry, Senior Economist at the Directorate for Employment, Labor and Social Affairs at the OECD. Welcome, Valerie. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. For your first pick today, you're talking about a new report on the gender pay gap and wage transparency. Yes, I'd like to share some findings from our new report, which is entitled Reporting the Gender Pay Gap in OECD Countries, Guidance for Pay Transparency, Implementation, Monitoring and Reform. And I think this is a good one for this segment because it highlights some important emerging practices that could be quick wins for gender equality. So let's start with pay gap reporting itself. Can you just briefly tell me what it is and why wage transparency in particular is so important? Sure. So this report was motivated by the fact that the gender pay gap is still an enormous problem around the world. In OECD countries where we focus our research, the gender pay gap is around 12%. And this means that a full-time working woman earns, on average, only 88 cents to every dollar or euro earned by a full-time working man. Now, obviously, there are many, many factors that drive the gender wage gap, and these include horizontal and vertical segregation and unpaid care responsibilities that fall disproportionately on women, and, of course, discrimination. This last factor is the hardest to measure, uh, but gender discrimination in hiring and salary offers have really been proven in experimental audit studies. So while we know that a lot of good policies have been put in place to address these root causes of the gap, it remains an incredibly persistent feature of labor markets, uh, and many countries' progress has stalled in recent years. So in response to this, many OECD countries, and EU countries in particular, are trialing pay transparency policies. And one of the most common approaches is gender pay gap reporting, uh, where private sector employers are required to analyze their pay data and report gender disaggregated pay information to different stakeholders, such as workers or the government or the public. And over half of all OECD countries, uh, 21 out of 38, now systematically mandate this type of reporting from employers. And this report provides some practical guidance on how to do that. Great, so let's get to some of that practical guidance. Can you give us a couple of examples of the kinds of good practice that the paper highlights? Well, I think, It's important to start off by saying that pay gap reporting in itself is already a relatively quick win. It asks employers to use wage data that they already hold to calculate what are often relatively simple statistics. And then those statistics help to illuminate pay gaps. This information is a really critical tool for workers and their representatives to advocate for pay equity. And it helps put pressure on firms to pay women and men fairly. The report does a very in-depth stock taking of policy approaches to pay gap reporting across countries, but I'll share two quick wins here. So first, there are some easy ways to communicate results clearly, and I think a better understanding of the pay gap should help put pressure on firms to close it. So I really like a randomized control trial that was done by the Government Equalities Office in the United Kingdom that found that people most easily understood the pay gap when it was presented in terms of money rather than as a percentage. 
Another policy practice that I really like is the use of pre-existing government data to calculate wage gaps for firms. So in most countries, firms have to do this analysis by themselves. And this implies at least some basic startup costs, even in countries where the government provides free calculator software, like in Switzerland. But in Lithuania, for example, the Social Insurance Administration calculates wage gaps annually for firms using wage data they already hold based on social security contributions. And then they just post the pay gap results online on a public website in multiple languages. So these are very low cost, low hanging fruit type interventions that can really make a difference. Thank you for bringing in that paper and highlighting those findings. That's really useful. Just briefly, you've also brought in another paper on social care, which was the subject of last month's episode of this podcast. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yes. So my colleagues in the OECD Social Policy Vision just launched a report called Beyond Applause, looking at how to prepare for the future of long-term caregiving by improving the job quality of care workers. And I think this report's really valuable and timely because it puts in quite stark relief this tension we face when contrasting, on the one hand, growing long-term care needs in aging populations, and on the other hand, growing shortages of care workers. And the authors really dig deep, looking at poor work conditions and low pay and really a very sad lack of societal recognition for these incredibly important jobs. And I think it's a call to action for governments and really societies overall to invest in these workers. Yes, as you say, the pandemic really exacerbated, you know, an existing and worsening problem of the poor conditions and burnout amongst health workers and carers, uh, when, as you say, the demands for care are only increasing. And it's an interesting reflection because in our episode on the care economy last month, we talked about how to ensure that care work is decent work using that framing and also how to ensure care services are of high quality. Ensuring care workers are well supported is another really important dimension to considering both of those things. And so, as always, for our audience, we will put links to both of these resources in our show notes. Valerie Fry, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back soon. See you then.